Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 143, The Crimean War, Part 4. Last time, we covered the events leading up to the beginning of hostilities at the dawn of the Crimean War. Today, we begin discussing the war itself. We are now in March of 1853, where Shamil, the imam of the Caucasus tribesmen, called for help from the Ottoman Empire to stem the tide of Russian advances through the areas of Chechnya and Dagestan. Governor General Mikhail Vorontsov was sweeping through the region, but not by direct military conflict, but by burning and destroying the natives' farms, villages, and crops. The Chechen people began to side with the Russians because of this, just hoping that they would just leave them alone and let them feed their families. Gradually, the Russians, seeing that they were succeeding in subduing the population, began to slowly transfer troops from the Caucasus to the Danubian provinces. This gave the Turks a place to concentrate their ground forces on, as they viewed it as a Russian weak spot now. So on November 9th, the Sultan called for a holy war against the Russians and would aid Shamil and his men. They attacked and took the fortress of St. Nicholas, the town of Shek Vitili in Georgia, and killed about a thousand Cossacks, tortured many of the older male population, raped the women, and sold their children into slavery at the markets of Constantinople. They did this with the knowledge that the French and British had anchored a number of ships at the city of Bekoz, right outside of Constantinople. The Turks knew that they had to supply their men in the Caucasus by ship, and although their navy was no match for the Russians, led by Admirals Vladimir Kornilov and Pavel Nakhimov, they decided to go ahead. They actually knew that they'd be destroyed in battle, but went through with it with almost a face of complacency, almost wanting to be defeated, in order to hasten the inclusion of the British and French in the war. On November 30th, 1853, Admiral Nakamov ordered an attack on the Turkish fleet at, and now there's a number of different pronunciations of this town, but I'm going to go with the one that seems to be more popular, and it was the Turkish fleet at Sinope on the Anatolian coast. It was an absolute rout. Adolphus Slade, an advisor to the Turks, gave this account, quote, In one hour or one hour and a half, the action had virtually ceased, save dropping shot here and there from the want of means of one side to continue it. Half the crews of the Turkish slips were slain, their guns were mostly dismounted, and their sides literally beaten in by the number and weight of the enemy's shot. Some of the ships were on fire. The Russians cheered. They had obtained the object for which they had come into the bay, the destruction of the Turkish squadron, and on every consideration they should have ceased firing, and had they done so, they would have avoided merited censure. But they reopened their fire on the stranded hulks, and in addition to the ships already engaged, their frigates came in the bay to range close to them and complete their demolition. Many men thus lost their lives, either by the shot or drowning in their attempts to reach the shore. Together with the ships, the Russians destroyed the Turkish quarter of Sinope with shells and carcasses. The ruin is complete. Not a house is standing. 
the inhabitants having followed the governor in their flights from their home at the first shot. Now, when word got to the ministers at the port, the Turks were strangely calm about the news. As Slade commented on the odd reaction, quote, Their cheerful, cushioned apartment and sleek, fur-robed persons deepened in imagination by the force of contrast, the gloom of the dingy cafes of Sunope with their writhing occupants. They listened, apparently unconcerned, to the woeful tale. They regarded composedly a panoramic view of the Bay of Sunope, taken a few days after the action by Lieutenant O'Reilly of the Retribution. A stranger, ignorant of the nil admirari of Ottomans, would have fancied them listening to an accountant looking at a picture of a disaster in Chinese waters. So why would they be so non-reactive? Well, it should be obvious, because they wanted it to happen. They sacrificed the men and the village of Sinope in order to get the world back their side against the barbaric Russians. By December 11th, the news reached the British Isles, where the media decided to paint the Battle of Sinope as a slaughter and a massacre despite Russia being actually fully justified in their actions. The Queen and the Prime Minister, Lord Aberdeen, were not swayed immediately into declaring war. They, along with the ministers, still believed and wanted to negotiate a peace with Russia. As Queen Victoria said, quote, We have taken on ourselves, in conjunction with France, all the risks of a European war, without having bound Turkey to any conditions with respect to provoking it. The 120 fanatical Turks constituting the Divan at Constantinople are left sole judges of the line of policy to be pursued, and made cognizant at the same time of the fact that England and France have bound themselves to defend the Turkish territory. This is entrusting them with a power which Parliament has been jealous to confide even to the hands of the British crown. As for the Russians, we have these lyrics to a song published on December 19th, 1853, to show how they felt. Know that we have against your force and against your barbaric fleet, both ships with white wings and paddle steamers, and our sailors no less than yours, so inured to the varying elements, and where numbers may be wanting, Russian hardihood will triumph. With the British and French now up in arms, we have to look at the state of the Russian army. Supposedly, they had 1.5 million men to call upon, but the reality is only about 500,000 had any real training, and only about 53% of the men had firearms at, that, at their disposal. Now, understand, 53% of the 500,000 had any guns. To top it off, many only had muskets, some rifles and carbines, but the majority being antiquated muskets. While the British soldier was armed with percussion rifles, only 4% of the Russian soldiers were so fitted. In other words, 20,000 of them. With 10 times the number of men of the British, they were less than one-tenth the strength. This was of a major concern of army commander Prince Paskevich, who was headquartered in Warsaw, Poland. The headquarters, while close to the action in Asia Minor, 
presented the age-old problem that was to plague the Russians throughout their history, which was the great distances which delayed communications, as well as supplies that would hamper the war effort. Paskevich had to communicate with St. Petersburg and his commanders in the field, which could take weeks. The British and the French trusted in their commanders far more than Tsar Nicholas did of his. The parallels between Nicholas I and the II are there, but that discussion is for a wrap-up podcast on the Crimean War. And of course, the Turks were right there, so they didn't have long uh, communications distances. The anti-Russian British members of Parliament and the Prime Minister's Cabinet by now were using Sinope as a rallying point to push for a declaration of war. We have Sir George Hamilton Seymour demanding the Russian ambassador Nesselrod explain the actions of his country's navy against the Turks. Lord Palmerston was similarly indignant, but he was generally disliked by the court, especially Prince Albert, the husband of Queen Victoria. There were rumors going around England that Albert was pro-Russian, as he was related to the Tsar due to his being of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, and the Tsars were from the house of Holstein-Gottorp, a nearby region of what is now Germany and Denmark. But that doesn't hold very good water, because the intermarriage of the rulers of Europe had been going on for centuries, so pretty much everyone was related to each other. Alexandra Fyodorovna, the future wife of Nicholas II, as you remember from the old previous podcasts of the Tsarist regime, was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria. They They were all pretty much related here. So even with all the machinations going on, there was still hope that a diplomatic solution could be found at this late date. But the big stickler in this was the poor communications lines between London, Constantinople, St. Petersburg, and of course Paris. Unlike today when you could pick up a phone and call someone, the ability to communicate over great distances was in its infancy. And this is where things fell apart. Nesselrod, by now, correctly viewing the British and French position as being very hostile to Russian interests. And then you have Nicholas and his utter ignorance of what's going on. And with the inability to talk directly to either his British or French counterparts, began to distance himself from his chancellor. Seymour, the British ambassador, was also on the outs with the Russian society, especially after news that the British Navy had been deployed. Earl George Clarendon was sure that war was inevitable. The following excerpt from a letter of his went the following, quote, The hesitancy and delay must have produced a very bad morale effect, despairing to the port, encouraging the Tsar. However, allowances must be made for the French, who wish to be thought equal, if not superior, to us, but who know the real inferiority of their ships and crews, and fear to make it public. I want no reliance on the Turks, their senseless boasting, their want of foresight and indifference to good advice make them bad allies, unless behind walls where they can't always be. Sebastopol must be the point at which all our efforts should be directed. The British Navy was now heading to the Bosphorus to persuade the Russians to head back to their port in Sevastopol. They then sent a naval force towards Sinope with a second-in-command, Rear Admiral Sir Edmund Lyons, in charge on the ship, the HMS Agamemnon, the first of its kind screw battleship with 91 guns 
and capable of going at that time an incredible 11 knots. The French sent their seven ships, all of whom were vastly superior to anything the Russians could put on the water. It is at this point that, as Trevor Royal puts it in his book on the Crimean War, that they were all, quote, drifting towards war. It is a chapter in his book and one of the best ones I've read so far. Royal makes it clear that none of the combatants were prepared for war. The British had a devilishly hard time recruiting suitable men for their military. As he puts it, quote, writing of the army he knew in 1846, an experienced recruiting sergeant concluded that over two-thirds of its number had been driven to its ranks through unemployment, and the rest were idle, bad characters, criminals, perverse sons, discontented, and restless. Only one in a hundred had genuine ambition or came from respectable backgrounds. As a result, far too many ordinary soldiers were inadequates or social misfits, whose failings were often exacerbated by alcohol. Drunkenness was a major problem for all the armies on all sides. Oftentimes, the men who were found drunk were fined or flogged. Even with the harsh punishments, drinking alcohol was still a real detriment to discipline. Now, the officers, they were not much better. As Sir Garnet Wolseley wrote after the war, quote, Almost all of our officers at that time were uneducated at the time as soldiers, and many of those placed upon the staff of the army at the beginning of the war were absolutely unfit for the positions they had secured through family and political interest. They were not men whom I would have entrusted with a subaltern's picket in the field. Had they been private soldiers, I don't think that any colonel would have made them corporals. Both the French and the British had little to no experience in fighting a war against a major power as a Napoleonic conflict had passed into memory and the fights these two countries presently were fighting were colonial battles. On top of it, there was a deep distrust of the Ottoman army, which they viewed as, quote, vicious, corrupt, lethargic, and timid. Now, the Turks, led by Omar Pasha, the former Croatian known as Michael Lattis, or Mihailo Lattis, an Islamic convert from Orthodoxy, were not complete pushovers. Their best, recruited from Albania, Bosnia, and Bulgaria, were fierce fighters, but not very well armed. The Turks viewed themselves with great conceit and looked down on their allies. Of the British, they said that the Redcoats were, quote, very fine to look at, but believed they would flee at the first sign of conflict. Battle plans were being drawn up by the British, French, and Turks, despite their differences. The main goal was taking the fortress of Sevastopol, and that without that, there would be no way to subdue the Russians. They knew, though, that this was not going to be an easy task. The city was very well fortified on both sides, to the Black Sea, the seashore, these formidable walls, and from the northern lands. So coming down south from the north, they would face equally as difficult of a place to attack. You can kind of think about it as being as fortified as Constantinople. As Lord Clarendon wrote on March 1st, 1854, quote, The operation 
will ever be memorable and decisive is the capture and destruction of Sebastopol. On this, my heart is set, the eye-tooth of the bear must be drawn. Until his fleet and naval arsenal in the Black Sea are destroyed, there is no safety for Constantinople, no security for the peace of Europe. The French, for their part, were all in on the idea of attacking the Russian port city. As the British ambassador to France wrote about the support of Napoleon III and his foreign minister, quote, How I rejoice at your determination about Sebastopol. It was but the other day that I said both to the Emperor and Druyan that if we let slip this occasion to do up the Russian Navy in the Black Sea, we should repent it bitterly. You may depend upon it that if the present business is made up before two years are over, the Russian fleet will be before Constantinople, ere we shall know anything of the matter. She will never give us another chance of getting there before her. Therefore I say, burn and destroy everything, and at every hazard, and send double the ships to do it if necessary. But when we look at things from kind of a 30,000-foot perspective, which nobody did, I'm quite stunned that there was little thought given to the difficulties that would come about regarding a successful siege of Sevastopol. It would require a joint effort of the navies and armies of the Allies, all of which who really didn't like each other or trust each other, and it was something that had never been done successfully before. Even with all the saber-rattling and preparation for war, the diplomats still fought for a peaceful solution. There were talks in Vienna and Paris, and even Napoleon III sent a personal message to Tsar Nicholas I, asking for a peace talk to begin to halt further aggression from all sides. The Tsar would have nothing of it, as he felt a certain contempt for the French king, and when he wrote his response, he even brought up the past of 1812 and the French defeat, like to kind of rub his nose into it. On both the British and French sides, there was debate as to who would be the heads of the operations when the war began. Many of the best military minds were by now old men, having served in the Napoleonic Wars that ended 40 years before in 1814. For the Brits, Field Marshal Fitzroy James Henry Somerset, the first Baron Raglan, was chosen to lead the expeditionary forces. While an able man of great bravery and, quote, loyal, self-effacing, yet possessed of an iron will, he was one to refer to his French allies as the enemy, as he had fought them in the Peninsular Wars of 1807-1814 under Arthur Wellesley. When he assumed command, though, he was 64 years of age. The problem was, there was no one younger with his experience. On the French side, they chose the equally controversial Armand Jacques Leroy de Saint-Arnaud, a 53-year-old Marshal of the French Army. He was disliked by many who had fought under the first Napoleon, but he was a successful leader who fought the Algerian conflicts with honor. Many thought that the real reason he was given the position, though, was his support of the coup of Napoleon III. As Adolphe Thiers commented about the men selected to lead the French forces, and I just love this quote, it's, it's a real fun one, quote, nothing can be more pitiable. With the single exception of Valiant, the Minister of War, who was a man of honor and patriotism, besides being the first engineer in Europe, 
There is not one I would hire as a clerk. There is neither sense nor honesty in the whole gang. And this is a Frenchman thinking about his own choices here. The British had deep reservations on their part about the head of the French forces, as evidenced by the following comment made by Clarendon to Stratford that he had, quote, no confidence of any kind in St. Arnaud. He is a regular charlatan, and Napoleon I would never have sent such a man to command for France far away from home at such a time. The stage was now set for a catastrophic war, a war that would be the first of its kind to have reporters embedded with the fighting men. In England, they picked William Howard Russell, an Irish journalist, to be sent to Crimea. He would in time become more famous than any of the military men fighting in the conflict. And when I say catastrophic war that we were heading into, let's think about the incompetence of the leaders. And that's something that if you read the books about the Crimean War and you, you know, look into it in depth, and we'll talk about it in the following uh, podcasts, the, the incompetence cost incalculable suffering and death when it was not necessary. Now, the Russians, having moved troops into the Danubian principalities of Moldavia and Wallachia, were now on the north side of the Danube River and were given an ultimatum to leave or face a combined French, British, and Ottoman force. They gave them a six-day grace period, and if no satisfactory answer was given, full-scale war would break out. Nicholas, amazingly, I just it's hard to fathom here. He dismissed the French ultimatum outright. And this is even worse. As for the British, he didn't believe they would attack him. With the Austrians, he was steadfast in his belief they would actually aid the Russians. Now, all of these false beliefs would be exposed for what they were, fairy tales. He was completely delusional about who his enemies and who his friends were. He just did not listen and pay any attention. So now, join me next time when we list and talk about the commanders of the armies and navies of all combatants of the Crimean War. I'd like to discuss who these incompetent generals, marshals, admirals, and the like were. There were some who were quite good, especially the ones who would uh, be fighting in the siege of Sebastopol on the Russian side. Uh, so, look really, uh, you know, uh, happily about doing that one because I, I think that's a real important crux and a kind of a focal point of the Crimean War is who were these leaders? And we can see Nicholas already as being, you know, incompetent, not knowing who in the world his, his allies and enemies were. So how many hundreds of thousands of Russians had to die because he wouldn't discuss peace talks because he didn't know who he was fighting. So anyways, I enjoyed, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. And if any of you have a chance, please stop by at the blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com and make a donation, large or small, to keep the podcast going. I'm really trying to keep the advertisers away and avoid any crass commercialism from spoiling the experience. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.